Bibles tonight and be turning to the book of 2 Thessalonians, the second epistle of Paul to the church at Thessalonica. Good to see you on this Sunday night and uh, looking forward to getting to God's word together. We are, um, as I said this morning, planning on having another few messages kind of to complete the series that we were doing last year on major doctrines, basic doctrines. The last one we've been talking about is the doctrine of last things, eschatology, and we had a message or two on that, and then we've been sort of uh, redirected for a few weeks, but I, I really want to get back into this and, and kind of finish this up. Um, I have a my personal, my personal journey as far as uh, prophecy in times, as far as studying that, it's never been a, a, one of my most important things to study, but I think it is an important thing to study. I think sometimes if we're not careful, and this is especially true about this subject, people can kind of go to seed on something, obsess on something, just think about that one thing. And I've, I've, this is my own my personal opinion. Uh, I've... I've found that in my life, I need to really stay more focused on things that are how to live this life and let the end, what's going to happen in the end take care of itself. God's got that all under control. But it's still wise, it's prudent, it's helpful for us to know. That's why God put it in the Bible. And so we're going to look at it a little bit uh, tonight. And so we're going to begin in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, and then we're going to move in a while to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. If you're able to stand, please stand with us for the reading of the Word of God, and I'm going to begin reading in verse 3, and we're going to read down through verse 10. We're not going to spend a lot of time on all of this, but I'm going to read it all because verses 3 through verse 10 is one sentence, so I don't feel like we ought to just take a part of the sentence. I think we ought to at least look at the whole sentence. You grammar experts would um, enjoy diagramming this sentence. <laughs> Verse 3 says, We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is meet, because that your faith groweth exceedingly, and the charity of every one of you all toward each other aboundeth, so that we ourselves glory in you in the churches of God for your patience and faith and all your persecutions and tribulations that you endure, which is a manifest token of the righteous judgment of God. And I'm just going to kind of use that statement tonight, the righteous judgment of God, because we're going to talk about God's judgment tonight, use that sort of the title, which is a manifest token of the righteous judgment of God that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also suffer seeing it as a righteous thing with God to recompense tribulation to them that trouble you. And to you who are troubled, rest with us. When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God, and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished 
with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power when He shall come to be glorified in His saints and to be admired in all them that believe because our testimony among you was believed in that day. Let's pray. Father, we thank you tonight for your word, Lord, and we ask for your help. As we study it together, help us to uh, understand what the scripture says. Help us, Lord, to rightly divide the word of truth. Help us to apply to our lives that which needs to be applied. Lord, may your word work in us as we study it, as we read it, as we receive it. I pray for those of us who are saved tonight that, Lord, your word would have free course among us. I pray for those here tonight that are not saved, that, Lord, the seed of the word of God would be received into good soil, that it might produce everlasting fruit. And we'll give you the glory for all that you do. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. It's kind of a scary passage of Scripture. You've heard me say this before, many of you, but, you know, when I moved here, um, when my wife and I, Tracy, moved here, it was 1977, I'd gotten saved, gotten right with the Lord in a church in Texas, and, and started attending there in 1975, and not too long after that, God really made it clear to me he wanted me to preach. And um, so I, I really took the Bible seriously. But before I moved here, I'd only preached one sermon in my life. And that was uh, into, get to a children's gathering, a little children's church. You're in children's church on a Sunday. I got, they asked me to preach to children. This was the first text I ever used preaching to kids. In flaming fire taking vengeance on them that know not God, <laughs> who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord. <laughs> so, can't, can't beat that, right? Can't improve on that. I'll never forget that. They probably won't either. <laughs> That's one of those you know, etched memories that they have. You know, the judgment of God's a serious matter, isn't it? And I think it's, it's really, to me, when I think about it, seriously, just stop and think about it, what's gonna, what this world has in store for it, what all those who have in store for them who reject the gospel, it's a very, it's a very serious matter. And um, so let's look at this. We're actually going to spend more time in chapter 2 than chapter 1, but, but this, the subject... The topic of the judgment of God, the wrath of God, the vengeance of God begins in chapter 1 and pours over into chapter 2. I read this long sentence and I, as I said I'm not going to spend much time on it. But Paul begins in the third verse by commending this, this great church. The church at Thessalonica. The more you read about it and study about it, uh, how it was established. We read about it in the book of Acts. We see these two epistles that Paul wrote to them. It was really an outstanding church. In verse 3, particularly, he's rejoicing and thanking God because their faith is growing exceedingly. 
By the way, that's the way it ought to be in our, in our lives. Uh, I, I love the choir. When I saw that the choir was singing that song tonight about uh, believing to see the goodness of the Lord, I love that song. It's been a long time since we've heard it here. But, but you know, our faith ought to be growing, not stagnant. Uh, this notion that I, I got saved and, and then I just sort of put my spiritual life on hold. Saved people aren't supposed to do that. Our faith ought to be growing. We ought to be growing in, our, in our, the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he was commending them for their growing faith and their growing love. He says, the charity, in verse 3, of every one of you toward each other aboundeth. So this is Paul's... Um, natural way. He starts off by commending the churches and, and, and uplifting them and praising them. And then in verse 4, he talks about their patience and faith in all their persecutions and tribulations. They had, like churches, all the churches of the New Testament era, they suffered. They were, they were persecuted. They had problems they, in many, many ways. Paul even boasted of them, he says in verse 4, so that we ourselves glory in you, in the churches of God. We, we make mention of you, how you have grown and your faith has grown even in the face of persecution. By the way, persecution has a way of really revealing the, the, the seriousness of our faith. You know, I think Americans, Christians, and American churches are experiencing a little bit more of resistance maybe to now than we've been accustomed to. And you know what? That's not bad for us. It's really good for us. It helps us really see how sincere, genuine our faith is. And then he, he talks about, he begins to talk about the judgment of God. In verse 5, he's referring really to the fact that the churches there have endured this affliction. And he calls that in verse 5 a manifest token of the righteous judgment of God that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also suffer. Sometimes we look at trials as though, you know, they're uh, an intruder, an unwelcome intruder into our life, and yet God uses trials. And even when people are persecuting us, God can use that. And it's all a part of God's plan. But we sometimes think when we're going through trials, or if we you know, if we were to live in a place and have a time where we are facing intense persecution because of our faith in Christ, and by the way, many people are in many parts of the world, real, genuine persecution. Um, a person would maybe have a tendency to think, why is it that I, as a Christian, I love the Lord, I, I want to I serve Him, and as we heard in that special, I want to know Him more. Uh, why would we be the object of persecution. And what about the persecutors? How come it is they, they get off uh, scot-free, as we would think sometimes? But then that's, that thought continues into verse 6. And this really gets into the subject at hand. Seeing it is a righteous thing with God, it is a righteous thing with God to recompense tribulation to them that trouble you. You know, people who are not familiar with the Bible and people who do not know the Lord and people who look at these matters from a, from a viewpoint not based on Scripture, they say, well, why would God ever judge people? Why would God, you know, allow people to go to an eternal place of fire? Why would God judge? Like, we're going to read about some serious judgment, and when you talk about the end times, we're talking about judgment unlike anything we can ever imagine. 
But I just think it's good to be reminded that it's a righteous thing for God. You know what's, you know what's really amazing to me? It's not so much that God is one day going to judge the world with his wrath. What's amazing to me is he's not already done it. That's what's amazing to me. He rained fire and brimstone on Sodom and Gomorrah. Is that right? He destroyed the whole world in Noah's day. Only one family, righteous family, trusted in God, survived that worldwide flood. And you know what? The, the, the world that we live in today is facing a similar judgment. But it won't be with water. It'll be fire. So it's a righteous thing for God to judge the wicked. And um, their day, the persecutor's day is coming. And that's, what, that's, that's how Paul, if you could use this word, sort of segues into this subject about the final judgment. Verse 7, it says, And to you who are troubled... If you're troubled right now, he says to these first century believers in Thessalonica, to you are troubled, rest with us. When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. I mean, there's there's just something, there's something um, pure and right about those words. That one day he's coming with his mighty angels And he is going to judge sin. And he's going to judge the world. But what he says in verse 8 just dispels any thought that it's just going to be a a cakewalk. It's going to be an easy thing. In flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, everyone who's alive at that time, everyone who's living when this takes place, And by the way, we don't know, but there could be people sitting in this room now that will be alive when that takes place. It could be that most of us will be alive when that takes place. We don't know. But I'm just telling you, if you're here tonight and you you reject the gospel, you don't obey the gospel, this is talking about what you have to look forward to. In flaming fire taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel. I mean, people sometimes just, they're too cool to obey the gospel. You know, they're, they're not going to be uh, humble enough to say, I need God in my life. Well, I'm telling you, you're going to have a long time to regret that. Eternity, that's a long time. Verse 9 says, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. You know, I was thinking driving uh, to services tonight about that passage in Ezekiel where it tells us that God does not delight in the death of the wicked. God, God doesn't enjoy seeing people die without him. People who, But one day... People who reject him are going to be judged. They're not going to be judged because God is unrighteous. They're not going to be judged because God is unkind. Because God is so loving and so kind that he sent his only begotten son to this earth to go to the cross and suffer and die for the sins of every person. That's how loving and kind God is. 
But when a person rejects Jesus Christ and rejects God's plan and will not submit to the gospel, then they're going to be judged. You know why we don't have to be judged? Because Jesus took our judgment upon himself for us. He's already paid the price. He already went to the cross. But if you reject him, you're going to have to face that eternal judgment. That's just what the Bible says. So judgment is a serious matter to me. And it is to you as well. It's true. Judgment is, is serious even when it comes to correcting a child. Right? It is. There were very few times I enjoyed whipping my children. Sometimes I really enjoyed it, but no. <laughs> no, I, I didn't like it. That's why I had my wife do it all the time. No, I, I didn't like it. Especially when I did it right, I didn't like it. When I would, you know, when I wanted, when they do something wrong, what I wanted to do is just slot, just put a knot on their head. That's what I wanted to do in anger. That would have made me feel better. But when I did it the right way and said, go to your room, Jedediah, he was the one that got it most. <laughs> go to your room and you think about it and I'll be in there in a moment and we'll deal with it. Well, it was, it, it was no fun for him. But it wasn't any fun for me either, because the more I cooled down, the more I got under control, the more I didn't want to whoop him. So I didn't whoop him, I just spanked him. No. It's never, it's never, disciplines, when a church has to discipline a member, sometimes churches discipline their members, that's not a pleasant thing. Judgment is never delightful. It's a serious subject, and it's especially true when we think about God's judgment. Now, tonight, we're, this is sort of just an introduction or kind of a, an outline of what lies ahead in our study and in, in the end times. But this, is an, this to me, in, in 2 Thessalonians 1, is really a vivid description of God's judgment. And... There's, there's a number of ways to look at this, and I'm going to get into this, the meat of this in a moment, but, but I think it's important to say these things. Number one, it's, God is righteous. I said this earlier, didn't I? God is righteous to judge the wicked. God is righteous. The fact that, young person, I hope you'll listen to this, and we ought to all hear this as adults as well, but the fact that God has delayed his judgment is not an indication that he will not judge. You know, sometimes people think, well, he hadn't, he hadn't done anything yet, so he must not going to be doing anything. Don't make that mistake. As I said, Paul continues this theme into chapter 2, and I'd like for you to join me there, if you would, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Because what we see in these verses is sort of a sequence of events that I think... I think would do us well just to kind of look at and see these are the things laid out before us that are going to take place in the future. Now, one of the, thing, one of the subjects that we covered before, uh, before we had this little intermission was the rapture of saint, the saints that, the, that will be taken out of here. And that, that's, that's something that you, uh, to me is undeniable. Jesus is going to come. He's, going to, he's not going to come to this earth, but we're going to meet him in the air. All those who know him will be meeting him in the air. We covered that in an entire message. Um, and that begins really the 
uh, seven years of what's often called the tribulation period. Jesus said it'll be tribulation like this world has never seen. And that's what we're going to cover in the next few lessons. But look in verse 1, if you would, please, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and by our gathering together unto him. Now to me, this is talking about the rapture of believers. When Jesus comes and we are gathered together with him, when we are taken up to be with him in the air, and um, the saints that are on earth at that time, could be tonight. This, if, the saint, if, Jesus, if Jesus blew the trumpet and we leave here, it could be tonight, then everyone that's saved will disappear from this room. And whoever's left, you can feel free to come up and finish the sermon if you'd like. But I guarantee it won't be a pleasant time knowing that you missed the, you missed the boat. This, is, this verse 1 is talking about what Jesus was referring to in John 14, 1, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you that where I am, there you may be also. He's coming for us. He's going to come back and take us with him. That's the rapture of believers. And we will be with him, I believe, in heaven for seven years. And that's when this great tribulation is going to happen on this earth. At the end of that tribulation time, and we're going to talk about this here in chapter 2 in a moment, Jesus will come back to this earth at the end of the tribulation. At that time, there will be great war in the Middle East. We'll talk about all that in another message. Great war against Israel, the nations of the world. By the way, we see some of this stuff in the news. The nations of the world aligning themselves against Israel. And Jesus is going to, at that time, Jesus is going to come back with us, with the saints. And he will deal with this world, deal with uh, his enemies, and establish his kingdom and set up his reign for a thousand years. Sometimes called the millennial reign of Christ. For a thousand years, he is going to literally reign on this earth. We'll talk about that in another message but this so chapter one two and verse one begins with this about the rapture when we beseech you brethren by the coming of our lord jesus christ and by our gathering together unto him that you be not soon shaken in mind or be troubled neither by spirit nor by word nor by letter as from us some people think that people wrote a letter to the thessalonians in with paul's name like they were trying to confuse the people we don't know that for certain as by letter uh, by letter as from us as that the day of Christ is at hand don't be shaken or troubled that the day of Christ is at hand now that day of Christ I don't believe it's talking about verse 1 the rapture I think it's another way of saying the day of the Lord and uh, which is a time of great judgment Paul had written this church um, let's just, matter of fact, turn to the left just a little bit to chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians. Paul had written this church and given them information, instruction uh, about the rapture. He says in verse 13 of chapter 4, and we're not going to 
take this apart verse by verse, but he said, I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that you sorrow not even as others which have no hope. Talking about the sleep, of course, talking about those who have gone to be with the Lord, they're, di- they're, de- they're dead. But if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. Their bodies are asleep, but they're with him. And when he comes, he'll bring them with him. That's what we looked at in chapter 2 and verse 1 of Second Thessalonians. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain to the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep, For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we, which are alive and remain, shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Same kind of language we have in 2 Thessalonians 2.1. So shall we ever be with the Lord. So he had given this same church in his first epistle this instruction concerning what we call the rapture. The rapture is not in the Bible. It means to be caught up, the catching up catching away of the saints. But now he's given them in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, where we are now, further explanation of these end time events. Uh, some people think or assume or that maybe they were confused that the, maybe the rapture had already occurred. And that's why he says in verse 2, that you be not troubled that the day of Christ is at hand, that, we, that it's already happened. Again, the day of Christ... I believe he's talking about the day of Christ's judgment, the judgment we read about in chapter 1 and verses, verses 8 and 9. It says, you know, that he, he will come back in flaming fire. And so he, what, what chapter 2 is doing, it's really trying to settle them down and say that you don't have to be concerned that the day of Christ is at hand because It's the day of Christ. The day of Christ's judgment is not at hand. The day of the Lord is the most common phrase used for the the end days time of judgment. Used used a lot in the Old Testament. Used over about 30 times in the Bible. The day of the Lord. And it's usually a time of great judgment. And a time of tribulation. A time of wrath like we read about in chapter 1. And what Paul is saying to them is... This is not going to happen imminently. Imminent means it could happen any moment. You say, well, I thought, I thought we thought the coming of the Lord could happen. The rapture could happen at any moment. But the day of God's judgment will not happen until we're gone. So we're not so concerned about the day that we're going to, because we're not going to experience the wrath of God. I'm not saying we won't have bad times, but we're not going to experience the outpouring of the wrath of God. It's clearly, I believe, taught in the Bible. And uh, but, but the rapture could happen at any moment. But look at what he says in verse 3. Let no man deceive you by any means. For that day, talking about the day of Christ or the day of the Lord, that day shall not come except there come a falling away first. And that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition. So he said there's some things that are going to that have got to happen, have not happened, but will have to happen if you're in the day of Christ. And one of those things is, um, he called it, a falling away. And I I think, when we think of a falling away, we think of an apostasy, people falling away from the faith, and that's always been a problem. It was a problem in Jude's day in the New Testament. It's a problem when Paul wrote to Timothy. Uh, it's a problem now, obviously, 
But I think this is not a general falling away, but a great and final rebellion. And because that will be indicative of the last day's great tribulation. And the man of sin, look in verse 3, the last of verse, the man, that man of sin be revealed, the son of perdition. And who is that man of sin? I believe that man of sin is the Antichrist. And the Antichrist will be alive before the tribulation, but he will not be manifest or revealed until the time of the tribulation. And then it will be, man, it'll be evident who he, who he is. He doesn't have to be revealed before the rapture, but he must be revealed in the time of the tribulation. And so Paul now is talking about those tribulation times. And he look in verse 4, he describes some things about the man of sin, the Antichrist. It says, who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped. So he opposes God. He opposes opposite. He's the opposite of God. He is the Antichrist. And he will demand worship. Now again, it's hard for us sometimes just to think forward and think what this world is going to be like when we're out of here, but it's going to be a horrible place of deception. And this world leader will require, will demand to be worshipped. And he will be worshipped. And we'll see why in just a moment there'll be such deception in the day. And um, it goes on to say in verse 4, so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God showing himself that he is God. He is, he'll be such a blasphemous leader, such a blasphemous, powerful, influential person that demands worship and will go into the temple of God, which hasn't even been re rebuilt yet. The temple was destroyed in 70 AD. It hadn't even been rebuilt yet. But it will be rebuilt, rebuilt, and it'll be rebuilt, I believe, soon after the rapture. That'll take place. It could even start before the rapture. We don't know. But he will declare that he's God. What a, what a place this world is going to be. And um, he is truly the anti-Christ. Verse 5, Paul says, remember you not. Don't you remember, he says to this church, that when I was yet with you, I told you these things. Paul taught these things when he was present in the church at Thessalonica. Now verse 6, again, gives some insight about what's going on in our world. It says, and now, I want to emphasize that word now. He's talking about what's going to be in the future, but he, now he's talking about now. His, in his day and age, and now you know what withholdeth that he might be revealed in his time. You, there's, there's, there's something that's holding back. That he will be revealed in his time. Verse 7. For the mystery of iniquity doth already work. Now that mystery of iniquity. That's an interesting phrase. Iniquity means sinfulness. Lawlessness. Rebellion. And it's, Paul says right now it's working. This mystery of iniquity is already working. This lawlessness, this rebellion, this blasphemy, that spirit of rebellion has always been. And, but one of the things we're seeing is this anti-God, anti-Christ, anti-truth 
is on the increase. And, you know, you'd have to really be um, a, much of a recluse not to see that in our culture. So the mystery of iniquity has already, already worked. Only he who now letteth will let until he be taken out of the way. Now that's an interesting phrase that, that uh, it's not hard to understand, but, but that's not language like we normally use. He that now letteth will let. The word letteth means to hold, means to hold back. It means to restrain. It's like something's holding back. He, a person, he is resisting. He is holding back. He is restraining. Someone is holding evil back. I mean, we may think the world is a wicked place, but be assured, it's being restrained. And we may not realize it, but it's being held in check. He who letteth, who's holding it back, is going to be taken away, it says right there. He that, let's read it, read it there in verse uh, 6. Now we know, now you know that what, now you know what withholdeth that he might be revealed in his time, for the mystery of iniquity doth already work, only he who now letteth will let. Until he be taken out of way, and then shall the wicked be revealed. Now, who is, who is it that's holding things back? And I believe that he is the Spirit of God. It's the Spirit of God that's keeping evil restrained. And it may not seem like it's being restrained, but it is being restrained. And you and I cannot even begin to imagine how vile and wicked and perverse this world would be if every one of us were gone. It would be a different world. I think we, if you think about it, you can realize that. So he's restraining evil. Now when it says he'll be taken away, it doesn't mean that he'll no longer be working down here, but he's no longer, he'll no longer be standing in the way. I mean, the Holy Spirit will continue to work even after we're gone, but not in the degree, it'd be like it was in the Old Testament period. If you read in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit worked on occasion. He'd come upon people. He'd use them. But they weren't all, all the, all the followers of Jehovah weren't all indwelt by the Spirit of God in the way that we are. Every one of us, if saved, have the Spirit of God living within us. And he... He restrains and restricts evil in our own life. He, he deals with us. He helps us. He's, in, he's in, in, our, in our corner helping us resist temptation. But when we're all gone, this world will be a much different place. That's what Paul is writing about that's going to take place. Not only does the Holy Spirit indwell believers, but the Bible says that, he, that Christ actually is is present when his church is assembled. Where two or three are gathered in my name, there will I be in the midst of him. Churches are going to be gone. Christians are going to be gone. People who have a biblical mindset, Judeo-Christian values are going to be gone. People, it's, it's just going to be a wicked, evil, vile, perverse place this world is going to be. And so Paul is writing to them, and he says the man of sin will be revealed and he says there in these verses that we read a couple of times that, that he's, he's being restrained now. But verse 8 says, and when that 
and when, and then, talking about, and then, when he's taken out of the way, and then shall that wicked be revealed, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. Now again, that wicked, that wicked world will go on for years. But in the end, Jesus is going to come back. Verse 8 says, this will be the next coming of the Lord. Not the rapture, but he's coming in judgment. The Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth. You know, if we were, let's take our Bibles, just take a moment and go uh, to the book of Revelation. In Revelation uh, chapter 20, Revelation chapter 19. This is, the, this is when he comes back in verse 19, chapter 19 and verse 11. And I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. And he that sat upon him was called faithful and true and in righteousness. He doth judge and make war. This is Jesus coming back. His eyes were as a flame of fire and on his head were many crowns. And he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dripped in blood and his name is called the word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in white linen, fine linen, white and clean, and out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword. Out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword. That's the word of his mouth. That's what Paul is talking about in 2 Thessalonians. It says, The Lord will consume with the spirit of his mouth. Out of his mouth, verse 15 says, goeth a sharp sword, and with it he will smite the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron. And then look at verse 21. The remnant were slain with the sword of him that sat upon the horse, which sword proceeded out of his mouth, and all the fowls were filled with their flesh. So Paul writes here back to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 that, at, that when he that letteth is no longer letting, when he's no longer restraining, the wicked will be revealed, and the Lord will eventually come back. In verse 9, if you look there with me, and we're 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 9. It says, even him who's coming, this is all, like I said, kind of an outline of the future events. Even him who's coming is after the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders. We're not going to do it tonight. We could turn to Revelation. We'll look at that in another lesson. But one of the ways that Satan's going to deceive so many people is with miracles, signs and wonders. Just because a person produces a miracle doesn't mean they're necessarily of God, right? Matter of fact, you'll remember when Moses was going before Pharaoh that the, the Pharaoh's, Egyptian Pharaoh's crowd, they could perform miracles too. Moses would perform a miracle and they would perform one too, just because a person, and that's what's going to deceive people. This must be right. It must be true. Look at what this person is doing. Verse 10 says, And with all deceivableness and unrighteousness in them that perish. Here's why they perish. Because they receive not the love of the truth that they might be saved. They reject the truth and they're deceived. And verse 11 is such an important verse to me. And for this cause... 
because they rejected the truth, because they would not submit to the truth. For this cause, God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie. There, you know, you, it's always consequential when a person rejects truth. When a person believes truth, there's blessing. When a person accepts truth, God works in their life. When a person rejects truth, their heart becomes hardened and they're more easily deceived. That's why it's never wise to reject truth. But this talking about people who were alive, people who had heard the gospel, people who had had opportunities to be saved, and they rejected the truth. They would not be saved. You, there could be people sitting here tonight, and that applies to you. I don't know. But you've heard the truth of the gospel. You've heard it preached. Your mom and dad has told you. You've listened to the preacher. And you say, that's not for me. It's not for now. I'm not going to do it now. If that's you, the Bible says, because you have rejected truth, God, God will send a strong delusion that you'll believe a lie. You say, well, I'll believe later. I've heard people say that. Well, I'm, I'll get saved during the great tribulation. I'll take the mark of the beast. No, the Bible says you're going to be sent a strong delusion and you're going to believe a lie. Verse 12 says that they all, all the people that he's talking about, all the people that applies to, all the people who heard the gospel and rejected, that they all might be damned, that means judged, condemned, who believed not the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. If you're sitting here tonight, or you're watching this, listening to this recording, or watching it online, and, and you have pleasure in unrighteousness, that means there's something wrong with you. Now, all of us sin. All of us make mistakes. We don't, we don't want to live in sin. We don't like it when we sin. God doesn't want us to sin. John said, I write these things unto you that you sin not. But when we sin, as a Christian, we hate the fact that we displease God and we want to get it right with God and we want to ask God to restore fellowship and walk with Him. But if you just enjoy living in sin, you've got a bad problem. You've got a serious problem. And you can blame, I'm telling you tonight, if you can just say, well, I know I, I'm saved, but I just, I don't like to live for God. I like living in sin. I don't want God telling me what to do. I don't like my parents telling me what to do. Don't fool yourself into thinking that you, that you have a relationship with God, that is not the way Christians are supposed to live. And if you live that way, God will take you to the woodshed. Right? Whom the Father loveth, He chastens and scourges every son. And scourging is not the little pat that we might give a child, you know, trying to teach them to behave without hurting them. That's, scourging is not that. It means God will discipline you if you belong to Him. So, I say that because I, it concerns me that people think, well, you know, um, I'll take my chances with, this, with Jesus coming back and I'll take my chances in the tribulation. I, this is one of the verses that I believe teach us that people who reject the gospel in this life will not want to be saved, will not care to be saved, will not be saved during the tribulation period. Now, will people be saved during the tribulation? Yes. Lots of them. We're going to talk about that from the book of Revelation. But I don't believe it's going to be people who rejected the gospel in this life. I think it's going to be people who've never heard the gospel. So 
this is just kind of a message to re-enter the subject of last times and what, what is before us. We're going to have a few lessons more. We'll talk about the tribulation. We'll talk about the Antichrist and, and things. Um, why, why is this important? Why is this helpful? Why is the teaching of last days or eschatology helpful? Number one, it helps us understand what's going on in our world. You know, the globalism that we're seeing, the ecumenicalism that we're seeing, many of the disasters that we're seeing. Um, I really believe this, I really believe one of the greatest indicators that we're moving that way is this, this whole um, globalistic world, one world. And but I'll tell you another thing, and I'm going to close with this. Another thing that this teaching ought to do for us, it ought to give us an urgency about doing what we can while we can with the gospel. God is righteous to judge, but we know, we know that God is merciful and forgiving and people today that are alive on planet earth have an opportunity to be saved that many of them will not have in the tribulation period and this is the only time we have I mean if you knew if you knew that some great tragedy was going to come to your neighborhood maybe some fire was going to come, maybe some bomb was going to be dropped, and you didn't go out and tell people about it? Think about that. You didn't warn people? What if you said, well, I'm going to just get in my car, and I'm going to drive away, and I'm not going to be affected by it. It won't affect me. How inconsiderate would that be? How unchristian would that be? We know, if we know the Bible, we know that our time is limited. That's our theme. Knowing the time. What time is it? The time is later than it's ever been. To do what? To try to reach people? To get involved in the ministry? To pray for missionaries and get busy about God's work? If this doesn't, if this doesn't, cause us to take our responsibility seriously. Something's wrong with us. I'm not questioning anybody's salvation, but if we're really saved, it ought to concern us about the destiny of those around us. Right? To do what we can while we can. I think that's, that may be one of the most valuable things about this topic is it ought to cause us to think we've got to take We've got to take our responsibility seriously. And I hope you'll think about that tonight. I hope I, I want to think about that tonight. So as we wrap this up, if you're tonight and you're not saved, you're, you're gambling with your soul. Now, it'd be one thing if you've never heard the gospel. But if you've heard the gospel, heard the gospel, and you're just kind of postponing getting right with God, that's very foolish. And I, I say that because I care about you. 
And tonight, I would just urge you to say, I'm, I'm tired of putting this decision off. I want Christ in my life. I want to make sure I'm going to heaven. That would be a wise decision. For the rest of us, let's, let's say, Lord, help us. Help us to do what we can. Show us what we can do while we can to get the gospel to people. Let's bow our heads together, all right? I want to urge you tonight with our heads bowed and our eyes closed to think about this future, these future events. They're going to come to the world. And the thing that will really trigger all this outpouring of judgment and wrath will be when Jesus comes and takes us out of this world. It may get, it may get worse before that, but it will really get bad after that. So think about that tonight. Our Father, as we pray tonight, we thank you for your word and we thank you for the leadership of the Spirit of God in the Apostle's life to write these words, both in 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians, concerning things that will happen in the future will happen in their future and will happen in our future. God, we pray that you'd help us to look at this in a serious manner. Help us to think about it. Help us to think about our lives, our testimony, our families, our neighbors, those we know, those that maybe have never heard or need to be reminded. God, I pray you'd help us. And I pray for those who are still on the fence as far as their salvation is concerned, I pray that the Spirit of God would work mightily in their hearts, bring them to a place of faith in Christ. While our heads are bowed this evening, would you take a few moments and just think seriously about this subject, about your own life? Lord, how would you have us live? Knowing that you could come at any moment, knowing that eternal destruction awaits those who've rejected the gospel, Lord, what would you have us do? What would you have me do? Would you think about that tonight?